and welcome to a brand new episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast, episode number 115. We're up to this week. I wanted to apologize at the head for the break in transmission last week. Um, You know, sometimes life and work just get in the way. Um, And as many long-time listeners will know, I've been working for quite a while now with um with sam and connie johnson um on their love your sister charity um and quite simply there was just too much more important work to to get to um in uh in preparation of of connie's memorial this past saturday which happened in melbourne at st paul's cathedral um if you're interested in in having a look at what was just a really moving and uh, remarkable memorial ceremony uh, you can do so at the love your sister facebook page which is um under love your sister on facebook as you probably gathered already uh and if you'd like to uh to donate or buy a pair of uh of connie cotton socks or semi seal socks you can do so at loveyoursister.org or via their shop um and you know, while you're on the website doing your doing your good deed, you might as well do another good deed and head to um, head to comingupnext.com.au. This feels weird putting a plug at this point, so I'm not going to. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the plug there. Uh, I'm just gonna introduce my guest for this week, which is a really truly remarkable man. I, I've never spoken to anyone like this uh, like this guest before. So I am uh, really excited to introduce to you Dr. Bruce Lipton, who is an American developmental biologist, and he's, uh, he's best known for discovering that genes and DNA can be manipulated by a person's beliefs and their environment. Uh, he is the author of the best-selling book, The Biology of Belief, and he is a former researcher at Stanford University's School of Medicine. He is an internationally renowned and recognized leader in bridging science and spirit. And uh, if you are interested in finding out any more about Dr. Lipton or, uh, or any more of his readings or, um, or find out when he might be coming to Australia or wherever it is that you live, you can do so at brucelipton.com. There's not too much more for me to say. I don't want to kind of overintroduce him. I just think that um, that this was a truly remarkable um, chat with uh, with someone who is doing some pretty groundbreaking work. So I hope you will enjoy my chat, episode 115 of the Coming Up Next podcast with Dr. Bruce Lipton. Uh, I I was first uh, your work was first brought to my attention uh, by uh, an ex girlfriend of mine. Uh, it was a very special relationship, um, and she really taught me a lot about love and about relationships. And uh, she and I actually came to a seminar of yours that was in Melbourne uh, in 2015 called the Honeymoon Effect, which was the science of creating heaven on earth. It's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> It's an amazing idea. I was I was really quite touched. You know, you, 
you presented this seminar with um, with your with your partner, and um, it was one of the one of the core sort of things that you spoke about was the idea of you know choosing love over over being right, uh, and this kind of philosophy uh, really really sort of stayed with me and, and shifted my mindset, and I think that it's had a lot of positive uh, effect on my. Uh, my creative kind of life and my creative output as a lot of your sort of um, your your work has well I appreciate that very much if especially if you think it's all gone in a very positive direction then great <laughs> uh, absolutely how did you uh, I suppose you know someone with your kind of background you know you have a degree in biology and a PhD in developmental biology um, you know studied muscular dystrophy and and um, how to clone stem cells well before it was, you know, even in the mainstream, as well as, um, you know, quantum physics and someone coming from that sort of background to then come into uh, that kind of, I guess, line of thinking and teaching. How did that sort of happen for you and develop? Well, it, it was really interesting because it was almost like this lightning strike momentary event where it was transformation of a life in in, in seconds. Uh, it's hard to explain uh, that experience, but to give this little background, number one is I was not a spiritual person. Um, I was a scientist. Uh, you know, genes, proteins, molecules, chemistry, that, that's what life is all about. Then you're here, then you're not here. That, so it's just simple understanding. And um, my work on stem cells back in 1967 is when I started this work revealed that the environment was controlling the genes, not the genes controlling themselves. So uh, the contention was I'm teaching in a medical school, I'm teaching students that genes turn on and off and control biology. And in my research in a laboratory, it shows, no, the genes don't control what's going on. It's the signals from the environment that control what's going on so that uh, the same cell in several different environments will have uh, different expressions based on the environment, not on the genes. The problem I had with my colleagues, of course, was everybody was so into genetics. Uh, I mean, it was that was it. Genetics, genetic determinism, genes, everything. And then my research shows up and says, well, not necessarily so. <laughs> so I'm like the only guy out there. <laughs> and then so I'm the weird, crazy guy. <laughs> but my ex my experiments were repeatable, repeat them over and over again. It kept showing the environment was controlling the genes. The biggest problem is, well, explain how that works, Bruce. And because everybody was working that genes were turning on and off themselves, uh, there was no reason for my story. Genes were controlling themselves. So I had to study how did an environmental signal actually go in and alter the genes to, so that I could give an explanation for my research because the results were always the same, but there was no mechanism that anybody was looking at. That led me to understand that instead of looking at the genes and the nucleus of the cell where the genes are as the control, which is actually in the textbooks at this very minute, still says the nucleus is the brain of the cell, as if the nucleus is making decisions and genes are like neurons turning on and off. Uh, that That's the, the belief that's in a textbook. And the reality is, no, uh, uh, the genes are for reproduction. 
they're not for for control. Uh, it, something controls them, and that's where my work on environment uh, led. And I said, well, okay, it's not in the nucleus. And I go back to the most primitive cells on the planet, bacteria, and they don't have a nucleus at all. And there are very few organelles, so it's like, but they do respond to the world. They have a primitive consciousness, change the environment, and they'll change their behavior to respond to that, which means that they're aware <laughs> of what's going on. And they don't have really a whole lot of uh, stuff going on in their cells. So I'm looking at how can this environment cross over into there? And the only structure that was really the only structure that's present in every living organism from bacteria up is called the cell membrane, the skin of the cell. And I started looking at it and um, trying to understand how the environmental signal has to go through the cell membrane to affect the cell. So I was trying to see, well, how does this membrane work? And I was looking at the biochemistry of the membrane for several years and, and trying to understand it. And one day, uh, and it was like, let's say 1.59 in the morning, <laughs> I, I'm rewriting the definition of a cell membrane uh, in a format that was different than any other way I've written it before. And here's what I wrote. Uh, and, and one minute later, my life was completely transformed. <laughs> so oh, wow. what, what I wrote was this, the cell membrane is a liquid crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. And in 1985, when I wrote that down, uh, to me, it's like, well, that's familiar. I've, I've heard a phrase like that. Uh, I was doing this through biochemistry of cell membrane. And I said, I, that sounds very familiar, that phrase. And I, I realized I had just bought my first Macintosh computer and, and I bought a book from our uh, like uh, um, um, electronic store people. It, it was a book, a simple book called Understanding Your Microprocessor. I just bought a computer. So I thought I'd get this little book. And all of a sudden I said, wait, that's, I've seen that phrase. And I opened up the, um, the, uh, the book and there in the introduction is the definition of a computer chip, which is a crystal, uh, semiconductor with gates and channels. And I go, Whoa, wow. What a coincidence. The cell membrane has the exact same definition as a computer chip. Huh. Uh, and at that one moment, uh, I started to look, wait, and I said, wait a second, just comparing the action of the gates and the channels and the nature of the mem uh, of the uh, uh, of the semiconductor and all the characters, I said, wait a minute, they're exactly the same. Uh, uh, and so it wasn't the cell membrane definition is like the definition of a computer chip. The cell membrane computer chip are exactly the same definition. The cell membrane is an information processor. It takes information from the environment, brings it in, and adjusts the biology to meet the demands of the environment. So it's interactive, and and, and uh, it's like, oh my God, it's an information, it's a chip. A cell is a chip. <laughs> and then, but that what made it more interesting is the nucleus is the disk, the hard drive. The nucleus has got programs in it. The programs are called genes. And the story that we were teaching was an old story. Uh, that the genes were like read-only memory, ROM, read-only memory. That's your gene. That's your story. That's the way we've seen it. That's what I was teaching in medical school, that the genes are the, you know, the blueprint of your life right there. But with this understanding now with the membrane as the chip and the, and the di nucleus as a disk with programs, all of a sudden, it's, oh my geez, it's not read-only, it's read-write, meaning I have programs in my in my nuclear disk, and yet I can change all the programs. 
I can write them differently based on the environment so that every gene that's in my, my nucleus of my cell, I can make over 3,000 variations of proteins from the same gene blueprint just based on how I respond to the world. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my Jesus. I looked at it and I said, cells are programmable chips. You put 50 trillion cells in the body and you program them and you make stomach and liver and muscle and bones. It's all just programming and information and environment and all this stuff. And, uh, and I'm so excited by all this because it's like, oh my God, this is so completely different than genetics. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually, there was no science name at that time. Uh, the science name for this understanding came 20 years later. I did this like 1970, 1980, and, and the, uh, the name epigenetics was late ni in 1990. So I was working in a science that it wasn't a name for it at the time. But what was the science? The science was this. We are not genetic readouts. We are adjustable, adaptable uh, beings based on the environment. So, uh, so when you say, uh, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, when you say, yes, go right it, ahead, please do. Just, just to, just to try and wrap my head around um, some of these concepts. When you're talking about environment, you you don't only mean like your physical kind of the the, fa the place you're physically in. You, you're talking about um, kind of emotional states of being as well as physical states of being. All of those kind of things that influence uh, ways of ways of uh, being is that if that yes that, this was the, 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 uh, this was the, this was the big jumping point uh, and the jumping point was that basically um, it, it said that the environment is controlling the cell so when I put isolated cells in an environment so they're like fish in an aquarium okay by themselves they they live and and create and organize they do everything by themselves they don't need the rest of the body i take cells out of your body put them in a culture dish and they have their own life going on there so basically i say oh yeah so the environment which is my experiment was changing the environment which changed the fate of genetically identical cells based on whatever environment i was doing uh so the the genes were the same in all the cultures just the environment was different and the expression of the cells were different and the expression was locked to the environment so i i go yeah basically environmental signals control the uh um genetics of the cell i go great and that's a, a cell in a plastic petri dish with culture medium this is the jumping point this is the connection part that makes it cool is that the environment in a culture dish is culture medium. And I go, yeah. And I said, well, what is culture medium? I said, well, it's the equivalent of blood. So if I grow human cells, I look at what human blood composition has in it. And then I try to make a synthetic version in the laboratory. And the synthetic version is called culture medium. But it's, it's trying to make blood, okay? So if I grow mouse cells, I look at composition of mouse blood and grow cells in that culture medium. Now I'm beginning to recognize, wait, the cells are responding to the culture medium, the environment for the cell. But the big question comes in is, that, well, what does that relate to me as a human being? I've got cells in a plastic Petri dish with culture medium. I go, when you look at yourself in the mirror and you see yourself as a single entity, that's an illusion. Because the truth is we're made out of 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living elements. When I say Bruce, you say Alistair, that, that's a name for a community of 50 trillion cells. So the, the, the simple and funny part about it is that a human being 
is a skin-covered Petri dish with 50 trillion cells inside versus my plastic Petri dish where I added <laughs> thousands of cells. I go, and in the Petri dish, we make culture medium. That's the environment of cells. I say, yeah, but culture medium is blood. So in my skin-covered Petri dish, your body, my body, 50 trillion cells are in there, and there's culture medium, and it's called blood. And, and the research revealed that the chemistry of the culture medium control the genetics. And all of a sudden, I said, oh, my God then the chemistry of the blood in your body is the culture medium that controls your genetics. And I go, well, yeah, yeah. I go, that's, that's true. Whether the cell's in a plastic dish or a skin dish, it's still controlled by the culture medium and the composition. And then the next step was, well, wait, what controls the culture medium, the composition of your blood? What controls the composition of your blood? I go, the brain. It's the chemist. Mm. And then the next jump was the jump that blows everything out of the water <laughs> and it goes like this. So I'm thinking, okay, the brain is making the chemistry and adjusting the chemistry of the blood as we're living. It's adjusting it. And then I go, yeah, but what is adjusting it to? Well, the environment. Uh, and I go simple. Uh, you walk outside and it's cold out. The skin picks up its cold. The brain interprets cold and then releases chemistry to bring the temperature back up to, you know, higher so that you uh, heat up your body and you get warmer. OK, I say, wait, wait, if you walk outside when it's cold, the environment touches the skin, the nervous system picks up that information, translates and says, oh, we got to, you know, if it's too warm out, we got to cool the body. And then the chemistry causes perspiration and a change in metabolism and all that. So I say, well, your temperature is adjusted by the environment directly. I go, yeah. But then I go, what about somebody in your environment, two people that are in your environment? And you see one and one you love and the other you fear. I say, oh, <laughs> well, that's your interpretation, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, and I say, why is it relevant? It's an interpretation. Uh, I learned that this is one that I love and I learned that this is one I fear. And I go, yeah, but it's an interpretation. It's through your life experiences. So I say, oh, so there are environmental signals that come in that are direct, like temperature. But there are other environmental signals that come in and the mind has to do an interpretation of what does that signal mean to you? And I go, oh my God. Then what it means is this, is how you see the world is translated into chemistry, which controls your genetics. And how you see the world doesn't happen to have to, it doesn't have to be the real world. <laughs> uh, you could look at the real world, but if you have a misinterpretation of something or somebody and you give them a value, or let's say this person's scary, and when you see them, your biology responds by releasing stress hormones, which is a response to that scary part. Uh, and I go, yeah, but then later you find out this person's really a nice person. <laughs> and I go, oh, okay, and I changed my belief. Now when I see the person, I release a whole different set of chemicals. So all of a sudden it's like, yes, the cells respond to the environment, but in the human body, the cells also respond to your interpretation of the environment. And that means if you change how you respond to the world, you change your genetics. And mm. it's like, oh, my God, the mind creates. So the bottom line conclusion, how does this work? Bottom line, the mind has an image, love or fear, let's say. You know, I look at this person, I get love. I look at this person, I get fear. I go, well, when I look at this one with love and the image is love, 
the chemistry that comes out of my brain is chemistry that is emotionally supportive of love. It's uh, love gives you pleasure. Uh, you release oxytocin when you see someone you love because that's going to bond you with that person. Uh, you release uh, uh, growth hormone when you see someone you love and that enhances your vitality. And that's why when people are in love, they're so much healthier and more energized and happier because the chemistry that is translating love is enhancing the body. And I go, then the same person sees this other one who scares the hell out of, I go, Oh, that chemistry of love is not now going to be released from the brain. Now the chemistry of stress hormones and things that affect the immune system, they're going to be released by the brain when that person sees, uh, when you see that other person. Uh, the point is this. We are continuously adjusting the chemistry of our blood based on how we respond to the world or how we imagine the world. That's the other cool part. It doesn't even have to be the real world. You can just have an imagination and the chemistry of that imagination will affect your body as well. So uh, your cells are being adjusted to what the real world. And I go, no, they're adjusted by your mind. Where's your mind? And so all of a sudden it's like, Oh God, this whole thing changes the whole game. We're not victims of our genetics. We are creating our genetics based on our life experiences, our mind, our interpretation, mind, body. All of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, the mind body connection. That's exactly how it works. Yeah. The, the mind makes an image. The brain translates the image into chemistry. The chemistry goes into the blood, which is the culture medium. The blood goes to 50 trillion cells in your skin-covered Petri dish. And as it does in a plastic dish, the chemistry of that blood will control the genetics, the behavior, and the life of that individual. And that's why we conclude with this one thing. I mean, I can't conclude. I'd want to have 12, 15 hours with you on this <laughs> right now. But uh, w what's really important about this is that only about 1% or less, this is, this is a profound number, 1% or less of disease is due to genetics. 90%, mm. 90% or more is due to stress. And stress is due to interpreting the world and then and, and creating images in your mind of the world, which are feeding back stress. And the whole idea is, well, what if you change the picture? I go, oh, well, then you change the chemistry. <laughs> I go, yeah. well, what, what if you stay in love? It's like, oh, well, then you'll always be healthy. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, yeah, well, that's the game, folks. Uh, and so in that one minute, 1.59 a.m., uh, to the next minute, it's like, oh, my God, I went from, uh, you know, like this genetic deterministic, teacher professor into this wild card that goes it's it's not genetics it's the new science no name at that point but now i'll say epigenetics <laughs> and it's like epigenetics is a revolution the revolution is prior to epigenetics we were genetic automatons victims of our heredity you got something running in your family lineage and you go oh my god i can get the gene and i can have the disease and therefore my future is already programmed genetic determinism and I go, and all of a sudden there's the new science that says, no, it's a revolution. Why? You can change the genetic expression, thousands of variations of genetic expression, all based on how you are responding to your mind. 
And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, we're not victims. We are creators of our biology and our life experiences. Uh, 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 do I have another minute to conclude one last best thing that happened in that one one minute between 1.59 and 2 a.m.? Yeah, absolutely. I got a moment. I'm just realizing this whole thing about cells as computers. And, uh, and when I started to match up the membrane, the molecular nature of the membrane, uh, to the computer chip, to the uh, uh, silicon-based computer chip. So the, me the cell membrane is a carbon-based computer chip, and the, the synthetic ones that we have in computers are, are silicon-based computer chips. Uh, they have exact same functions. And I realized, well, then the, all the functions of the computer are also in the body, and of course there are. Uh, the the memory is is like uh, the the hard drive is subconscious. The desktop is conscious. That's creative. You can put stuff on the desktop and create all the damn things you want. The subconscious just got all the the memories as programs in there, uh, and all this was cool. But the one that blew me away was then if we all have we're all responding to the environment then we should all be essentially clones of each other. Why? Because we're all, if we're all in the same environment, uh, there, there's, you know, we should have exact same responses. Everything should be exactly the same. And then I realized, yeah, but no two people are the same. And I say biologically, because you cannot take your cells out of your body and put them into another body. Because when you do the recipient's body, their immune system will say not self and destroy it. And if you put your cells or organs into somebody else's body, their immune system will say, not self, and destroy it. Point. The cells have a self. There's a self to them because it can be recognized by the, when you transplant them. So I say, where's the, where's the self? And, and this, is, this was the thing that's like, oh, my God. <laughs> the self is... What, what is different between two people are receptors on the cell membrane. Receptors are like protein antennas. Uh, and when they want to match a, a, a donor of a heart to a recipient of a heart, they look at the combination of receptors that are called self-receptors on the, the recipient cells. They say, okay, this is a code of receptors that represent self. Well, many of the codes, it's like a giant combination lock. So many of the codes are the same, but in different combinations. So you look at the donor, a heart, and you look at their self-receptors, and if you get enough of the overlap where enough self-receptors are the same between the donor and recipient, that's a match, and then you can that, that's a good donation. But if the donor organ doesn't match any of the self-receptors on the recipient's body, uh, they don't transplant it because the immune system will be aggressive and reject it too fast. So point, there's a self. Where is it? the receptors on the surface, which are called self-receptors. And the biggest thing is because of our conventional understanding of biology, focusing on the matter that, oh, the proteins are the self. It's like, no, no, the proteins are, are uh, antennas. They respond to environmental signals. And it's like, oh my God, each of us on our cells has a different set of receivers of self. So my cells have a set of self-receptors, not all of them. The red blood cells don't. That's why we can transfer red blood cells between people, but not other cells. Other cells have identity, the self-receptors. 
uh, and the point about it is then all of my cells are responding to the same broadcast. If I put your cells in my body with different set of self receptors, they're receiving a different broadcast from the environment. That's why the, the cells have to be eliminated because then you have, you're dancing to two different drummers. That's why when some people receive a heart transplant and then after that transplant is incorporated in their body, they begin to have different life experiences. Uh, uh, and well, how'd they do that? And they say, well, they're having experiences of the person who donated the heart. It's like, oh, is the memory of that person in the heart cells? I go, no, the memory is in the broadcast. The heart cells just have the antennas and they're still downloading the broadcast. So that's why a person that gets a transplanted heart also acquires characteristics of the person who transplanted the heart because they're receiving two different signals simultaneously. Oh, put all that together, Alistair, and then what the hell am I saying is simply this. Our identity, which in conventional world is due to the proteins on the surface of the cell, in the world of quantum biophysics is, no, the proteins respond to environmental signals so that each of us is receiving a broadcast of identity through the environment, a broadcast, just like a radio or cell phone or television is a broadcast. And your body is picking up uh, a station based on the self-receptors that you have on your cells. My body has a different station. <laughs> I have a different set of self-receptors. The person, any other person's got a different one. I realize, oh, oh, we're not in these bodies. We play through these bodies. <laughs> we're a broadcast. And I liken it to say, like, my body is a television set. And, and through my receptors, I'm playing the Bruce show. Uh, and then the part, that come, the part that comes into it next is, yeah, but if the television you're watching breaks, you say the television is dead. And I go, absolutely, television's dead, not working anymore. I say, is the broadcast still there? And the answer is, of course it is. Get another TV, plug it in, turn it on, and tune it to the station, and the show is back on. It's like, Oh, in that one minute, 1.59 a.m. to <laughs> 2 a.m., uh, I'm not spiritual at 1.59 a.m. At 2 a.m., it's like, okay, yes, I'm totally spiritual. I understand it. I'm a broadcast. <laughs> I don't live in this body. <laughs> uh, and it was like a, this whirlwind, like, it hit me in the head. It was like, well, it hit me in the heart. I, when that truth hit me, uh, I, I had this, not, I, my, my whole life has been in my head. I'm a professor, been in my head 40-some years. And when this reality hit me, it blew open my heart. My heart started to ache with joy. Tears were running down my face. It's like, oh my God, I, I could feel my heart. I, you know, I never felt it like that. Uh, and I now refer to that as my heart orgasm, where all of a sudden my heart turned on. It's like, whoa, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> and that was a, a transformational moment because I realized the A, that I am a spiritual entity and I play through this body. B, I cannot die because I'm a spiritual entity. The body is just a, a virtual reality suit. And, and that's, you know, it was interesting because the quandary, I, I am not spiritual 40 some years. One minute later, I say, of course, now I see their spirituality. Then the brain guy comes back in, not the heart guy, the brain guy. Well, why have a spirit and a body? Why not just be the spirit? So I asked myself that question. 50 trillion cells immediately respond with an answer. And the answer is 
you got to understand the humor <laughs> of the universe. Uh, I said, why have a spirit and a body? Why not just be the spirit? And the 50 trillion cells response was, well, Bruce, if you're just a spirit, what does chocolate taste like? Think about that for a second. <laughs> and all of a sudden I said, oh, my God, this device, my nervous system, vision, sound, smell, touch, feelings, emotions, all of this is chemistry and cells translated by the brain into vibration. The brain doesn't see the, the images that we see with our eyes. It doesn't taste the, 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 the chemical that's in your mouth. The brain just gets the vibration. And the vibration is now recognized. It's broadcast. Your, your, your brain activity is not contained in your head. There's a, uh, we, we used to read brain activity mainly with something called EEG, electroencephalograph, put wires on a person's head and then read their brain activity. And it's because the electrical activity of the brain gets conducted to the skin and the wires on the skin pick up the current. But now there's a new one called magnetoencephalograph. Uh, and what's different is the probe is outside your head. It doesn't even touch you. I go, well, what does that mean? It says, you could read your brain activity from outside. You're broadcasting your brain activity. It's not contained in your head. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, virtual reality suit. What does the sunset look like? What does chocolate taste like? You can't do that in a spirit. There's no mechanism for that. In a body, I have cells to translate chemistry into vibration, nervous system, pick up vibration, translate it and broadcast it back. And it's like, oh, this is a virtual reality suit. We came in here to experience life so that all the inputs that come in can be translated into a vibrational field picked up by our consciousness, our spirit. And then if we die, we can come back in another suit if as long as the combination of receptors are the same. We're back again to do it again. It's like all this happened in one minute, Alistair. <laughs> <laughs> it's, inc it's incredible. Just download <laughs> the meaning of existence and the meaning of life in one minute. Um, it, it really was. Uh, uh, the, let me just close this way because I know there's so much to discuss. But then the, the closing part was, well, wait a minute. Not only does my spirit just, you know, integrate with my body, you know, like uh, uh, I, I liken it to the Mars rover. I can't go to Mars, but I'd like to know what Mars is like. We can't send a person up there. What do we send? The little rover it looks like a go-kart with a lot of electronics on it. I go, that's the equivalent of a human. I say, what do you mean? I say, all the receptors, television and, you know, sensory receptors, temperature, chemical composition, the atmosphere, all that kind of stuff. There are devices built onto this thing, like sensory receptors, like our ears, eyes, nose, and all that. And I say, then what? I say, well, the rover moves around on the planet. The information comes into the receptors. The information is translated by the computer, sent via a broadcast from the antenna on the rover back to Earth. So the guy at NASA is, is responding to the world on Mars by knowing, oh, look how cold it is. And look, oh, you can't breathe this air. We're not there. The device is there. And then I go, yeah, but then the guy at NASA can drive the vehicle around. So it's like, oh, so the vehicle is not just sending information back to the guy at NASA. The vehicle is being moved around by the guy at NASA. And then it's like, oh, okay, last of the big explosions of Bruce's life. Here it is. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. The whole belief that we die and if we have a good life, we go to heaven is like, 
what if that is not the greatest cosmic joke that humans have ever had? That what if the simple reality was you're born into heaven? That we come here with these, with these suits, these virtual reality suits, and we create. And so I said, well, what's heaven? I said, well, what is it you want to create? That's <laughs> what heaven is. I go, here you are. This is it. All of a sudden, I thought, oh, my God, people think you die and go to heaven. And uh, the joke is, this is heaven. Yeah. And uh, and then the rest is history. It's like, well, then turn the hell that I lived into into heaven. It's like, yep, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great uh, one, one of the people I interviewed very early in, in this podcast uh, made a comment like uh, it's, it's an insult to what we have here to think that there's a place where there could be something better. Um, and I think that's quite pertinent. I agree. That is a wonderful, that is a wonderful saying right there. So beautiful because when you look around, as I look at this planet, I travel, I look at it completely differently. Of course, you know, it's, uh, and it's like, what a amazing, amazing environment everywhere. And it's like, wow, you could you couldn't even imagine that. And look at look at how beautiful it is. And and what did we do to it? Well, human behavior is now causing the sixth mass extinction of life, which includes us, of course. And uh, and it's like, oh, is this going to happen in thousands of years? I go, no, within decades. <laughs> yeah, right. we're, we're at that critical juncture where we we are at the critical junction of, yes, uh, we are here now and we may not be here very shortly. And there may not be any history of us left behind, uh, really, when the next generation becomes conscious enough to be where we are. Uh, and I mean that uh, in this really wonderful uh, upheaval of our belief about the planet. And that is um, we have a current belief that civilization started around 5000 B.C. in Babylonia, Tigris, Euphrates, rivers, Middle East, you know, the, the dawn of civilization. And now we find that there was a city in, in Turkey called Gobleki Tepe. And Gobleki Tepe was a city that was completely covered up. Uh, and it wasn't due to like erosion and sandstorms and stuff like that. Physically, people, there was a city, physically people covered it up. They put rocks and dirt and covered the whole damn city up. And it was like, okay, wh when did this happen? Well, this was 10,000 years ago. Oh, wow. There was a, a civilization that was advanced uh, and then and they disappeared. Uh, and all we know is you dig up this thing under this mound of dirt, which is another mystery. Why the hell did they bury the city in the first place? And the reality is, what, well, what happened to them? The one connection is uh, it happened at a time of uh, beginning of global climate change. That uh, And what's interesting, if you just look at the situation, you say, well, what's the environment like there now in Turkey? I said, well, it's like dry desert, arid kind of place. And it's like, yeah, but 10,000 years ago, there was a thriving metropolis. There were large numbers of people. Well, there must have been food. So prior to climate change, that environment was supporting a, a large population. Climate change, they couldn't live there anymore. They left. But who are they? When, where did they go? There was an upheaval. The whole thing is we don't even know. We're still thinking civilization began 5,000 years ago, and this civilization ended 5,000 years before that one. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we, we have a lot to learn. And what we're learning is we're at one of those junctures right now like Gobleki Tepe. Uh, and are we going to make it or not? And it depends. Well, are we going to change how we respond to our environment and start to recognize 
uh, that we ha- we are, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the negative words of what we're doing to the environment as a whole list are rolling through my head. We're destroying the environment. Uh, and the simple reality is we are the environment through evolution. Uh, the point is this, if the environment gets destroyed, oh, well, then by definition, so are we. So we're facing this this uh, radical uh, mass extinction, which is happening right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite incredible. Um, and I'd love to kind of take what you're saying a step further, the way that our thoughts uh, really do kind of shape our beliefs. And then those beliefs kind of, as you say, create chemistry and or and our environment kind of influences that and then that completely shapes our experience of life and our creativity our output our self-esteem our relationships all of this sort of stuff um but before i kind of step into that with you i'd love to first uh ask you if you you know you're you're a man of great science turned into um this great kind of spiritual experience and and belief uh, I, I wonder, one of the things I love to talk to people on this is if they remember the very first time that they uh, that they did or had an experience of the thing that they love to do now um, f- with their life. So I remember if, uh, I wonder if you remember the first time that you had a um, kind of connection with science or... Um, Absolutely. I can, it's vivid. I can, I can paint this picture. It's so vivid. Uh uh, uh, it was in second grade and, um, a science teacher brought in a microscope and of course, none of us had seen, you know, second grade What the hell's a microscope. Uh, and then they, we took some pond water and put a drop on it. And then the class lined up and, uh, I remember it was like a little soapbox you had to stand on so you could look down the microscope and one at a time, the, the class when you'd hear them go, Oh, oh you know, you waiting your turn. And uh, I finally got there and I looked in and, man, I saw an amoeba and a paramecium and they were moving around. And I thought, oh, my God, they're little things living in there and they're so small. And and, they're, and but they, the, the thing that got me right away was they, they weren't like a pinball bouncing here, then hitting here, like, you know, like a just a random action, like the paramecium moved over here and then stayed around and looked at something. And then it moved over there and stayed around. And it was like, you know, it, it was engaged with something. So in this uh, second grade brain of mine, I just looked and I said, oh, my God, they're like miniature people. <laughs> and they have a world in there. There's a world of miniature things going on there. And that was to me was like, uh, like, whoa. Uh, and I, when I went home, I, I, you know, got my parents with a, with enough, you know, please, please. They bought me a microscope and I had a microscope right after that, that, uh, classroom event. And that started being, and in the end, I, in graduate school, uh, I became an electron microscopist using the electron microscope. And, uh, you know, it's like the reverse of Star Wars, you know, going deep, deep into inner space so deep where no other people have ever been before. I, I had the opportunity of using this microscope 
that you could see inside the cells. <laughs> and, and, and it was like every day I went to work, it was like, oh my God, I would see things that no human had ever seen before. It was so like, wow, Jesus, it was great. I, I, you know, it wasn't like education. It was like fun. I would have, you know, the fact that uh, I got a grant to do this, uh, I was thinking I would have paid them <laughs> to have the opportunity to do this. And, and it started in, in second grade and, and it led to working with the cloning of cells that uh, led to epigenetics. That's amazing. So I guess to kind of uh, circle back around to what we were talking about and I guess where we kind of started the conversation, this idea of creating heaven on earth or probably better framed looking at being on earth as actually being in heaven. Um, yes, how do you kind of see the role in our framing of things, in our, in our mindset and in the environments that we put ourselves in, in terms of having positive creativity and positive output, positive self-esteem and, and fostering really amazing connections and relationships? Uh, this is a wonderful question because I can take you back to the original answer to the question um, uh, and it was 400 years ago, uh, and it was the Jesuits and the Jesuits said, give me a child until it's seven and I will show you the man. And people never understood. I mean, they, they use the quote all the time. It's like, yeah, but do you understand what it means? And, and the answer is, give me a child until it's seven. Well, it turns out seven years is the years, uh, for the first part of a child's life where, uh, behavior is downloaded by observing other people. And then it turns out that this behavior, which is in the subconscious mind, is responsible now scientifically understood for 95% of the experience and character of our lives. So basically what the Jesuits were saying, if you give me a child for the first seven years, I control the outcome of its life. That's that's I'll show you the man means I'll show you who what's going to happen. <laughs> they already knew they already knew that the first seven years of programming was the uh, the programming that will determine the character, the health, the behavior, the life experiences of that individual for the rest of their lives. Uh, the fact that this is 400 years old does not mean it got lost by any means that those people that are shaping the world and, and wherever they are today have quite the awareness that if you can program the first seven years, you own that person and you own the outcome of that person. Um, and I say, well, what's the meaning? I say, well, in, in the hands that it's being used in today, the result is look at the destruction <laughs> of the, the civilization and the planet, which is a propagation of beliefs from parent to child uh, during that first seven years over generations. I, I mean, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has nothing to do with anything that happened today, but it has to do with stuff that happened uh, how many generations ago when it first started and they're still doing it. Uh, basically, th that division uh, is, not, is not a current reality in the sense that it happened now. It was propagated for generations and things like that are propagated. So the issue is this, uh, can we propagate uh, a seven years that, that leads us to the life that you're talking about, healthy, happy, you know, heaven on earth life experience for everybody? And the answer is, of course you can. But 
the programming that, that we are receiving and have received over generations, uh, people have been unaware, except the, for the Jesuits, <laughs> that this programming is what shapes the character of your life. Uh, uh, even though they were told that for 400 years, that is where it is right now. So the idea is, well, what do you want out of your life? And the answer is, well, where's your program? And, and the significance is you are, you are running a program 95% of the day. Uh, you have creative control, but that creative control operates only about 5% of the day. And you go, of course, what the hell? <laughs> Why don't I make creative control the whole day? Uh, and it comes out because, and here's the reason, creative control is the activity of the conscious mind. Habitual control, which is 90, 95%, is the, the topic of the subconscious mind. And I say, well, the conscious mind's creative, and that's got wishes and desires, and if you're using that to drive your life, you, you create and manifest wishes and desires. Uh, and um, I liken that with what I call the honeymoon effect when people fall in love and all of a sudden, uh, no matter how crappy their life was the day before, 24 hours later, it's like, oh, wow, heaven on earth, life is beautiful, everything's great, love, love, love. <laughs> and it goes, well, how the hell did that change in 24 hours? And the answer was, uh, we now know for scientifically that's the one time that the conscious mind is running the system up to 90% or more rather than conventional 5%. Yeah, wow. And that's, be that's because uh, there's a statement of we become what is called mindful. So that's why 595, why 5% conscious, 95% subconscious. And here's the answer. Conscious can control the vehicle all the time, 100%. But if consciousness is thinking, then consciousness has to let go of the control. So, you know, I say, uh, Alistair, tell me, what are you doing on Sunday at four o'clock? Uh, if you're really going to try to answer that, uh, the question at this moment, where's the answer? The question that this moment is not necessarily in front of you. It's inside your head. You have to think, where is it? Let's say, what am I doing Sunday thinking? And I go, ah, there's the issue. That's the issue. Thinking takes the attention of the conscious mind from the outside world to the inside world. The moment you have to think about something, you stop paying attention to what's going on on the outside because consciousness has to go inward to get the answer. I say, well, what does that mean? If like if you're walking down the street or driving the car and you're thinking, does that mean you're totally disconnected and free flying at this moment? I go, no. The moment the conscious mind is thinking, the subconscious takes over the control and the subconscious is habits. So you know how to walk. Yeah, you can walk without uh, conscious mind paying attention. You know how to drive the car. You can drive the car without the conscious mind paying attention. No problem. But the issue is only 5% of the day is the conscious mind actually present and looking out those eyes and controlling life. 95% of the day is the average time that a person spends thinking, which means that's how much time the subconscious programs are playing. And the subconscious programs are the ones we talked about uh, in the first seven years where a child is downloaded with programs. Uh, and, and the problem with that <laughs> problem is uh, data reveals that up to 70% or more of those downloaded programs in the first seven years are Programs of uh, disempowerment, uh, programs of self-sabotage, uh, programs of limitation. I go, so, so what does that mean? I go, well, let's look at the data. 95% <laughs> of the day 
your mind, conscious mind is busy thinking, so you're on autopilot, subconscious, running programs. And I said, and yes, and out of those programs, what percent of those programs are going to take us to our destination, our wishes and desires? And I go, well, 70% of them for sure are going to sabotage you. <laughs> so you go, oh, my God. Uh, that means that 95% of the day I'm running programs that are predominantly sabotaging me. And then you would go, oh, but I would see that. So I would, I would be, you know, I wouldn't do that. That would be stupid. Why would I do that? And I go, because your conscious mind isn't paying attention. That's why you would do it. Your, your conscious mind is busy thinking. And people, they have a hard time dealing with that. So the story that is not new because I, I think it's 20 years in my lecture, same story, is... You have a friend, you know your friend's behavior very well, and you happen to know your friend's parent. And one day you see your friend has the same behavior as their parent, and this excites you. So you have to tell your friend, you go, hey, Bill, you're just like your dad. And I say, you back away from Bill because Bill goes ballistic. How, how can you compare me to my dad? I'm not like my dad. And everyone laughs because they have that experience. I go, well, that's the most profound story at this moment for this reason. Everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. The only one who doesn't see it is Bill. The reason? Because Bill's conscious mind is busy thinking and he's playing these programs and he doesn't see them. So he doesn't see that. He's sabotaging himself. And I go, OK, now, wait, that's about Bill. So the second profound point about the whole story about Bill is we are all Bill. There's nobody out here who's not Bill. Every one of us out here is playing our subconscious programs 95 uh, percent of the day and not observing them. I go, well, there's an unfortunate consequence of that. Uh, so I want to emphasize it because this is where people come from and this is why it's wrong. If you don't know you're sabotaging yourself and you have wishes and desires and you can't seem to get there, then where's the problem? And the issue is, well, if you can't see you were doing it, then the problem is everywhere else. <laughs> and I go, that is the problem. The problem is we are not succeeding, not because the outside people are not helping us succeed, it's our own subconscious programs that are sabotaging us. We don't see it. We become victims. And the reality is, no, you were a master. You just didn't realize you were playing these programs. Uh, uh, you know, 95% of the day you were playing these programs. You didn't see it. So you acquire victim status when, in fact, you were creating from the beginning. So that's why this is so an important wake-up call, Alistair, is that Get out of this concept that if things don't work, it's because the universe is against you. Almost inevitably, it's because whatever limitation programs we received in the first seven years, uh, they're interfering with the destination because we're creators. And when you didn't play the program, the one time you didn't play the program, when you fell in love and had the honeymoon experience, it's like, guess what? The moment the program didn't play and you were able to create now full time what did you create? Heaven on earth. I say it's the same world as it was yesterday. <laughs> yesterday you were the victim shit, stuff. And, and today <laughs> you're the master of stuff. It's like, yeah, the world didn't change. You just stopped playing the program. And the, once you stopped playing the program, wishes and desires became the directive of the nervous system, not the, not the limitations. So it's like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you would be able to shed any light, I suppose, on how we can uh, be more deliberate with our thinking and how we can bring about a higher level of consciousness from your experience uh, to be to, to live, I guess, in, in, a, in that kind of honeymoon 
mindset or, f- or, um, or phase where we are, uh, you know, 95% conscious most of the time instead of only a little bit of the time? Yeah. Well, there are two issues. Number one, we'll talk about each one briefly. A is what is the program? <laughs> and B, how do I change the program? Okay. So let's say what is the program? That's first. The, the first seven years of your life, you get programmed. And you say, well, why, should, why would nature program me? And the answer is this. Uh, I use it in my lecture. I say you go to the Apple store, you buy a new iPod, you take it out of the box, and the front screen on the iPod touchscreen is like the conscious mind. It's creative. I can make a playlist, adjust the volume, adjust the EQ. I'm creative on the touchscreen. So I get the brand new iPod, take it out of the box, and on the touchscreen I push play, and nothing happens. And now, I'm, of course, as an old guy with disgusted with the computer age here, can't figure out stuff. And some <laughs> seven-year-old kid looks at me and goes, well, mister, you, you didn't download any music. You can't play any music. It's like, oh, okay. So now iPod mind. And here it is. Touchscreen, conscious mind, creative wishes and desires. Memory, hard drive, subconscious program. Okay. So the whole idea is this. You cannot be conscious use the conscious part of your brain if you have nothing to be conscious of. In other words, there's nothing in the database. Be conscious of, be conscious of nothing or play nothing. You know, I push play on the touchscreen. There's nothing in there. There's nothing going to play. Be conscious on the touchscreen. No, there's nothing in there. I can't be conscious. So nature devises the first seven years as a download period where your brain is predominantly in a vibrational EEG, electroencephalograph state called theta, and theta is also hypnosis. So the first seven years, you learn programs by observing your mother, your father, your siblings, and your community. And it's a direct download. No consciousness, no filtering. The consciousness doesn't even kick in as a predominant activity until around age seven. So theta uh, is the first seven years. It's download. Observe other people and just record their programming, just like a video recorder directly connected to subconscious. All your experiences are down in there. How to behave, how you watch if you're a guy, you watch how your father uh, deals with your mother, how he deals with the siblings, how he deals with other people. Uh, you learn all these things. And, and the reason is simple this. How many rules, this is the reason, how many rules does it take to be a functional member of a family and a community? And the rules would be thousands I say, well, how are you going to teach an infant thousands of rules? The answer is you don't have to. The brain of that infant is recording them <laughs> so by just recording others. So the fundamental programs in your subconscious mind do not come from you. They're downloaded by observing others. So the programs do not represent who you are, what you want, or anything. They're just observing other people's behaviors. So, um, I, so I say, but then here comes the problem. Question A, what is my program and, and why is it a problem? Because you were being programmed in the last trimester of pregnancy while you were still in the womb, you were being programmed. Uh, I mean, uh, if a mother plays music, uh, uh, to, to her abdomen, uh, w- while she's carrying the fetus in that last trimester, when the, when the baby is born, it will recognize the music and know it already learned it. So it's learning in, in, in the womb. And it learns for all the way through age seven. So, you know, Alistair, you were there. So I said, well, what program did you get when you were one? Maybe you don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, how about the the program in the womb? (laughs) I don't remember that one either. Okay, I'll tell you why there's a problem. Probably Carly Simon. 
<laughs> the the well this the, the issue is we get a lot of programming in the womb and 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 the most important thing that people don't recognize is first in is more important than subsequent in other words your first experience with x is always going to be the most ex unique experience with x no matter how many times you replace it replace, redo x again in the future the first one is the most important so your first learning experiences are your most important and you have no idea of what they are because you weren't conscious of them anyway. And now they're running your life 95 percent. You say, what the hell are my programs? And then I then make everything simple. Ninety five percent of your life is a printout of your program. So all you have to do is look at your life right now. You don't have to review your history. It's irrelevant. You're running from programs at the current moment. And I say, well, how do you know what the program is? I say, look at your life and simple. The things you like and that come into your life and you like them, they come in because you have programs that accommodate those things. In contrast, anything that you want or like or desire, but you have to work hard at, put a lot of effort into it, sweat over it, you know, uh, j just working so hard. I said, why, why are you working so hard to manifest those things? Uh, inevitably, it's because you don't have a program to support those things. So you're not fighting the universe to get those things. You're having an internal battle here where your subconscious doesn't support those things is playing 95% of the day. And your conscious mind only looks up every now and then the 5% and goes, Hey, it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not working because you've been playing these programs. So now I say, well, now you know what the programs are. Look at your life. What is it you want that you have trouble getting? Uh, and the answer is inevitably that, end point is not a, a part of an acceptable program and then you say well i want to change the programs i say well you can change it but then here comes the problem with changing a program the conscious mind and subconscious mind not only do they have different functions conscious mind creative subconscious mind habits but they learn in different ways and this has been the conundrum because we educate our conscious mind so easily and then have trouble why doesn't my conscious awareness which is so damn smart you know, become character of my body? <laughs> Why am I still doing stupid things even though my consciousness is smarter than that? And the answer is because the conscious mind learns in a different way. Conscious mind being creative can learn in any number of ways. Read a self-help book, listen to this podcast, uh, go to a lecture, uh, even just go, aha, and the conscious mind learns. That's creative. But the subconscious mind is a habit mind and is a very important part about habits. If you create a habit, if you know, a habit that you want, <laughs> you don't want it to change. You want it to be resistant to change. It's a habit. I don't want it to, you know, I, when did you learn how to walk before you were two? I said, do you ever have to relearn how to walk again? I go, no, same program since I was two. It never changes. Yeah, thank God. It's a habit. It doesn't want to change. I go, so the first thing is recognize this subconscious mind being a habit mind is resistant to change. So all of a sudden you see there's a problem. Uh, second problem I always joke about in lecture. I say, well, we talk to ourselves and say, you know, Bruce, don't eat that donut. Bruce, Bruce, don't eat that donut. And there are Bruce eating the donut. And then I get angry with myself <laughs> and all that stuff because Bruce is eating the donut no matter how many times I told myself not to. Uh, and then I realize at some point the joke and the joke is this. As an identity, as an entity, you are in the conscious mind. You're, that's where you're received. Your, your identity is in that conscious mind. The subconscious mind is just a record playback data file 
I say, why is it relevant? There's nobody in there. I go, why is that relevant? I go, who the hell are you talking to? (laughs) (laughs) Bruce, don't eat the donut. Yeah. Who's listening? (laughs) Nobody in the subconscious mind because there's nobody in there. So all that talking to ourselves turns out just to create frustration, no resolution. Why? There's no, that's not how it learns. There's nobody there. I said, well, how does it learn? I go, three ways, two fundamentally basic ways that biology uh, has, you know, normally done it and a new way, uh, which I'll talk about. So the three ways are number one, uh, how'd you learn anything the first seven years? Hypnosis. Your brain was in theta. You want to relearn something, put your brain in theta and then, you know, play a program. Why? Because in theta, it's a direct uh, download from environment straight into subconscious, no conscious connection. And you say, well, do I need to do hypnosis? And I go, no. Every night when you go to bed, just as your conscious mind checks out into sleep, the brain's next phase of activity is theta. And then after a period of theta goes into delta, which is deep sleep. So there's this every night as you go to bed, just as your conscious mind is slipping and going away, the next activity of your brain is in theta. So if you have earphones on and you play a program, that program is being directly downloaded into the subconscious when your brain is in theta. So you can do what is called auto hypnosis, put earphones on, play a program that you want to have as your reality versus the one you're experiencing, put these earphones on every night. And as you go to bed, that program will play over again into the subconscious mind and build a program that way. Number two, after age seven, because that's when theta stops. And then I say, but you still learn habits. You learned how to drive a car. You were a lot older than seven. (laughs) Uh, You know, you learned whatever your career stuff is. You weren't seven. I say, oh, after seven, the subconscious mind learns by repetition. It's habit. You got to make a habit. Anything you learned, you practiced and you practiced until you learned it. Once you learned it, it became a subconscious habit. You don't have to do it again. So you want to put a new habit in, then you have to do just like any other thing. You have to repeat it and mean it and do it every day until at some point the subconscious mind by the process of habituation will download that behavior and it will become a way of life. Uh, A a modern take on that, which is humorous but true, is fake it till you make it. (laughs) You want to be happy? Well, pretend you're happy every day. Just pretend I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> and after a period of time, the subconscious mind will learn I am happy. And guess what? You don't have to say I'm happy. You are now 95% of the day operating from a new program called happy. And you and all of a sudden you'll be happy without ever thinking about it again. Uh, so you fake it. Uh, and so um, after uh, so there's two ways: hypnosis first seven years and still doable every night. And second, after age seven, every new program was a habituation, a repetition process, and you can do that again. Uh, I like to remind people that's not a sticky note on the refrigerator, that's a reminder, that's not a habit. Uh, A habit is a repetition, you gotta do it every day. Uh, And lastly, uh, the most exciting thing is there's a new form of psychology called energy psychology. There are a variety of these modalities. They're uh, technologies that enable you to change a program, uh, a program you could have had 50 years in your subconscious mind. Uh, You can rewrite these programs in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, uh, There's a list of these modalities on my website. So 
uh, let me just suggest that if people want to see energy psychology modalities, about 20 or more of them on my website, brucelipton.com, under resources. Again, brucelipton.com, under resources, there's a belief change section with 20 or more of these amazing energy psychology modalities that uh, uh, engage something called super learning. Uh, and with that super learning, you can download new behaviors in minutes, which is a godsend in this world because, boy, we got to change our behaviors because that's what's causing the extinction. So uh, thank goodness energy psychology is here because uh, you can make these changes rather relatively quickly. Wow. It sounds, uh, sounds incredible. I'm definitely going to jump online and check those out um, when, we've, uh, when we're done. Um, before we do before we do wrap it up, I, I, it would be remiss of me not to uh, not to ask you to speak on the uh, on the very topic that did create quite a, uh, a shift in my own thinking, and that was this idea of uh, of choosing love over choosing to be right. Yeah, it, it turns out, as I said, the the mind takes an image and turns it into chemistry, and the chemistry of love is so soothing and so nourishing of a body that it's almost like if you wanted a drug, love would be the drug because the chemistry that comes out of that brain is life enhancing in every way possible. To be right is then stress. To be right is stress, meaning, okay, this person says that, I say this, I think I'm right, they're wrong, now we're stressed. We're not communicating, we gotta stress. I go, well, great. You, how long do you want to hold that stress? Why? Because stress is the complete opposite chemistry of love. It will shut down growth and it will shut down the immune system. And that's why stress is the leading cause of illness on this planet. And so you have a choice. You can walk around with stress all day long, which most people do. And the net result is you're going to pay for it physiologically and behaviorally. It's going to be quite damaging. But stress is a mindset. Do you want to own that stress? Does it really bother you that much? Do you really care what the other person is real? Can you let them have it? <laughs> Can they be right? Uh, you know, uh, and, and it's really great because uh, you realize what's really important. If I have to put the two things on a shelf and say you want package A or package B, and package A is the love and package B is the stress, it's like, well, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> I take that love. And the idea is, well, what does it mean? It says let go of this other issue. It's not relevant to you. It's not relevant who's right, who's wrong in this case. You do what you think is right and you have to let the other people do what they do. Why? You can't create somebody else's life. That's their life. They can change. You could help them change, but you can't make them change. And uh, unless they're ready to change, anything you do is a waste of your effort. That's the biggest problem with compassion. Compassion is you see someone you love undergoing a lot of stress and you want to help them and you put a lot of effort into helping them and you realize it didn't change anything. And the answer was, yeah, not until they're ready to change will the change occur. You cannot change anybody else. And so the effort of uh, that stress of watching them go through this and you realize, oh, my God, this is so destructive. And it's like you could hold on to that stress, but they're the ones that's going to have the effect. But now you are, too because you're holding on to the stress that they're going to be experiencing. And the idea was, no, you have to learn to let go of things. 
uh, and <laughs> it was funny. I just saw the, the, this great play last night, which I wanted to see for a few years, uh, The Book of Mormon. And <laughs> part of that play, there's a there's a song routine where it says, shut it off, click it off, let it go. <laughs> And the fact is, well, that's actually right. If it's a stressful situation and it's not directly affecting you that it's like now on your life, because if it's on your life, you do something about it. But if it's a stressful situation between other people and it doesn't really alter who you are or your life, it has no meaning. You're carrying this uh, uh, this weight for no reason at all except that you want to be right. It's like, well, who gives a damn? I'd rather be in love. Why? The chemistry is far better than than the other one. Uh, it reminds me of a Buddhist story. It's about two monks, two Buddhist monks walking, and you know they're not allowed to have contact with women. And they come to a river, and there's a, a woman all dressed up in wedding regalia, and she's crying because she can't cross the river without getting her clothes all wet. And after a minute of standing there, one of the monks just stands down, picks her up, carries her across the river, deposits her on the other side, and the two monks keep walking. And about two hours later, one monk, the, the monk that didn't pick up the woman turns to the one that did and said, how could you pick up a woman? You're not supposed to pick up a woman. You're not supposed to touch a woman. <laughs> and the monk who picked her up said, I dropped her off on the other side of the river and you're still carrying her. <laughs> and the idea was right. This guy walked out for two hours carrying this issue, which was like, it was irrelevant. If we start to see what's irrelevant and start to make the decision of, is this really relevant? No. And why are you doing it? Because it's costing you. It costs you. And when you can learn to let it go, does it affect you directly that you can do something about? Then do something about it. If you cannot, if it's an indirect and you can't do anything about it and it's another person's issue, boy, that is the moment to learn how to disconnect because now you're going to carry their stress as yours. And, and, and it's like, well, stress is debilitating. So who wants to carry any stress? The idea of everybody letting go stress is the end solution to our problems on this planet. Amazing. Really mind-blowing. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Lipton. I, uh, no, Bruce. Would you call me Bruce after all this? Ah, yes. Thank you, very much. <laughs> thank, thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much, I Bruce. I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate being here, and I, I, I hope that... Uh, uh, that uh, the listeners uh, enjoy some of the conversation because uh, it's really empowering. And I say that from a, a student who did not live this way of life that I live now and live this way of life only being a student of the cells and taking in the wisdom of those cells. And once I applied it, it's like, oh, my God, it's a so much better life. And I, I hope uh, people see that opportunity. Mm, I hope so too. Um, I end uh, all of my conversations with the same question, and that question is, what makes you silly? <laughs> the cosmic jokes of the universe. <laughs> just when you think you know everything is going to work out just this way, and all of a sudden it works out the other way, and you stand there like, huh? <laughs> those are the, I, I enjoy those the most, <laughs> which is funny because I can laugh at those when most other people hold on to those moments and go, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, well, it's a different attitude. You got to laugh every now and then. <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you uh, transmutate those uh, those kind of moments? 
uh, those guys, I just look at them, it's wonderment. It's total wonderment. It's like what I didn't see, what I didn't know. You know, it's like with my, oh, uh, you're so sure you know something, and then you realize, no, you didn't know that at all. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny, you know, if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, the idea is let go. It's letting go. If you hold on all this stuff, it's like uh, you just, you know, using the clock, there's this thing running, your life is running. And how much of the time do you want to be on that show? If I was to have received psychoanalysis in earlier years, I would have probably been programmed as somewhat uh, bipolar, <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes manic, sometimes depressive. And um, I could tell when I would get into a depressive moment because things stopped working. One thing would stop working and I'd be all upset and then the next thing wouldn't work. And the more upset I get, the less things would work. And then it would be a spiral. I'd go downhill and at some point nothing worked. And I'd be so depressed and I could see it coming. And so one of these times near the end of that, <laughs> that thing, uh, I was going through uh, trying to do something and it wouldn't work and I was repeating and it was time consuming and it wouldn't work and I'd repeat it and I was getting so frustrated and angry and then I'd get really almost explosive and then I was mad at myself, you know, lifting, you can't do any damn thing right, blah, 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 getting mad at myself and then there's this like, this voice, it's like from a third party, I where very calm, I'm going through this anxiety with myself and this voice and the third party says, Bruce, don't you have anything better to do than to listen to this crap? <laughs> <laughs> and in that calmness of that moment, I said, yeah, I'd rather go do a movie. So I picked up a newspaper, found a movie, and said, go to the movie. And I went to the movie. The movie was over, and the whole depression thing was completely gone. I stopped. I just stopped by pulling out. And what happened was the next time I started going to spiral, I started to laugh because I remembered the previous time. And I, I stopped it then. And then after repeating this habituation, the whole depressive end totally ended. I'm just a manic guy. <laughs> the depression guy is gone. And it was habituation. Why? Every time it would show up, I'd laugh because of how funny that voice was. You know, it's just, don't you have anything better to do? It's like, that's kind of funny. And and every time I would laugh, it would stop. The That spiral would stop at that moment. And every time it happened earlier, and what my subconscious mind was doing was learning, don't go there. There's no reason to go there because I'll just laugh anyway. And and all of a sudden, that whole spiral thing ended. The whole thing ended. Just with the consciousness of choice. It's a consciousness of choice. That's great. What a great way to end. Thank you so much, Bruce. I appreciate the opportunity to keep talking like that. Thank you so much. <laughs>